You're listening to Podcasts with Park Rangers, a show where we explore the importance of our national parks and historic sites with those who live and work in them every day. We'll learn about history, science, and the beauty of nature from a unique perspective. I'm your host, Lucas VK. Today we interview Ranger Blaine Kordemeyer, Assistant Chief of Interpretation at Mount Rushmore National Memorial. Rushmore is an amazing place. It it has helped me become who I am. And I'm not just talking about my job. Being here and and realizing that people come here by the millions a year. And then I help those folks connect to Rushmore on a personal, meaningful level has helped me grow as a human. Stay tuned. We'll talk to Blaine about how they maintain Mount Rushmore and keep this iconic sculpture looking pristine. And we'll discuss what it's like to be face-to-face with the presidents. This podcast is brought to you in part by our Patreon community. All new patrons receive a personalized postcard from one of the national parks featured on our show. If you'd like to find out more, check out our Patreon page in the show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. When you look at Mount Rushmore National Memorial today, the presidential faces look perfectly carved out of the harney granite in the side of the mountain with not a blemish to be seen. But what if I told you there are 128 cracks and fractures in the sculpture today? The American icon wouldn't be the same if a giant crack appeared right down the middle of Washington's face or Lincoln's nose. So how do they keep these fractures from becoming a problem? The original sculptors preserved the memorial using a mixture of granite dust, white lead, and linseed oil to keep water out. They applied the special blend of materials as they carved the sculpture. And the recipe for the mixture was verbally passed down in the National Park Service from maintenance worker to maintenance worker. The exact formula is a bit of a mystery though, as it was never written down. However, with the advent of modern technology, the way the NPS monitors and repairs the sculpture has changed over the years. Using a network of fiber optic cables and sensors, employees at Mount Rushmore can get ahead of any issues and repair the memorial before problems arise, with much more advanced compounds than original sculptors used. And on some days during the year, you'll see the rope access team descending down the presidential faces, working hard to keep the memorial looking sharp. To find out more, we chat with Ranger Blaine Kordemeyer, the Assistant Chief of Interpretation, and a member of the Rope Access Team. Welcome to Mount Rushmore National Memorial. He began his career in the Park Service as a seasonal across several states in the U.S. I have seven summers worth of seasonal time in Colorado and Utah, and then transitioning from there to a little place called Russell Cave National Monument, which is in Northeast Alabama, and then from there came back home to Rushmore. I'm from South Dakota, this is my home state, and uh, have been in South Dakota since spring of 2001, back here at Rushmore. Ranger Blaine specializes in park interpretation and advanced his career while at Mount Rushmore. Leading interpreters 
directing their day-to-day -day around the property was my initial job here at the Memorial, and then advancing on up to a deputy chief or assistant chief of park interpretation. Blaine values service to our country and says it's the main reason he became a park ranger, a drive he initially picked up in the Marine Corps. Out of high school, I went straight in the United States Marine Corps, and from there developed uh, a love of patriotism and service to our nation and citizens. Uh, initially, you know, in the Corps and then advancing, it seemed logical to go to college and become a park ranger after that. Yeah, well, thank you for your service. For, it's my pleasure, yeah. honestly. Love both, to do it. Both here and, and before as a Marine. So we are talking a bit today about the maintenance and preservation aspect. So perhaps it's fitting that we have a little bit of construction going on in the background and our listeners might hear a bit of that. Uh, and today we wanted to get a little more into preserving the monument. Sure. Which is a big part of your job. It is. Although you work in interpretation. Yep. Our, our team, our rope access team, preservation team are made up from uh, law enforcement officials, uh, park ranger interpreters such as myself. We have some maintenance employees on the, on the team as well. Mm -hmm. um, and on occasion I've had a volunteer or two okay. in, within the ranks of our, our rope access team or preservation team. Of course, even these volunteers need to be well trained. Absolutely. We're all uh, at least level two rope access technicians. So we go through um, initially a 40 hour training by then, we, after that, we then take a both a practical test and a written test and an oral test hmm. to be rope access level ones. Okay. And then we can attain 500 hours worth of rope access experience to then be considered for level two rope access technicians. And then we also have to take the written, the um, practical, and the oral test to become level two technicians. And all of the advancements that are involved there, including being able to oversee minor, smaller projects, yeah. um, and some larger projects, depending on our specialty. Okay, and there's testing at both of these levels. Absolutely. But only at level two do you get out there and do this preservation? No, level one does level it as one well. Level one does it as well. Okay. Level one does it as well, It's able to access the sculpture. We always have to have at least an advanced level two Okay. or a level three technician to be able to do complicated systems. Okay. Yeah, it takes some oversight on, mm -hmm. on some of those. So what is it like being up there kind of eye to eye with these presidents? Being on the mountain and in front of the faces uh, is inspiring. Yeah, it's an, it's an amazing and scary sure. all at the same time. Yeah. Some of our team members don't have any problem with the height. It's just another place to work. Myself, I, I, I feel a bit of trepidation every time I back out yeah. over the face. Um, and you've done it often. Countless yeah, times. Yeah. But every time I have the whole pucker factor, the lump in my throat, is my ro are my ropes really going to do what they're supposed to do? Yeah. Um, but over time, you get comfortable on a face in the vertical nature. And especially when you start to do what you're there to do, do the work that you're supposed to, that you're there to do, mm -hmm. um, the height becomes secondary. 
right. to, the, to the primary focus of, of the activities of the day. Because then you, you really do get focused in on the job at hand. Yeah, the height becomes the secondary at that point. Right. So um, what kind of issues does the NPS have to deal with? Why, why is it necessary to get people out onto the With the, the sculpture? Yeah. yeah. The sculpture has some flaws some of these flaws are cracks speaking, yeah, yeah, that were there when Borgum carved it mm -hmm. and the workers carved this place. There were, there were flaws in the granite then that, that essentially dictated how the sculpture would look mm -hmm. as, as they blasted into the granite to reveal the faces inside. They had to adjust each individual face a couple times to get to a location where that feature would be most durable within the granite right. face. So Borgum had made those adjustments over the carving era. And those flaws are flaws that, those cracks are, are things we have to deal with today. Mm -hmm. Because what we did in 1998, we did what's called photogrammetry of the sculpture, which is simply placed a bunch of like a hundred different targets on the sculpture. They're just flat appliques. Okay and then took 2D high-def images from multitude of angles of the sculpture. Mm -hmm. And then what you do is you piece the application locations together in a 2D format. And then when you view this in a computer world, you can see the 3D emerge. Because you know the perspective that these photos were taken exactly. from. Exactly. Okay. So then what we did with our, um, our contractor, Respec Engineering out of Rapid City, who we've had the same contractor since then, okay. 1998. Since 98, yeah. We examined and found the flaws and some of the flaws or cracks that Borgum had to deal with back in the day. Yeah. And then we mapped all of the cracks within the sculpture and found that some of the cracks combined together on various formats within the mountain to separate individual blocks within the sculpture, rock blocks. There are hundred and like 28 individual cracks or flaws in the sculpture. Okay. And some of those cracks combine together to make 22 individual blocks, individual rock blocks within the sculpture. And we label them. If they're associated with Washington, they start with a W and then are numbered. Huh. If they have to do with Roosevelt, they start with an R. Yeah. If they have to do with Lincoln, they start with an L. Notice I left out Jefferson. There aren't any rock blocks really within Jefferson's face that really? we are concerned about. Okay. So that was probably the, the sturdiest part of solid granite. Sure there. was. Yeah. So they start with W1, that's the number, and they advance all the way to L22, Lincoln number 22 rock block. And they're, so they coincide with, there's like five on Washington, there's one up in Roosevelt, yeah. and then there's a bunch on Lincoln. So I guess the, the upshot here is that Borglum, who was the, the sculptor, did what he could to readjust his design as he discovered what was up there geologically. But Absolutely. you still have a lot of geology that needs maintaining and, and readjusting. You know, rock filling. block analysis and yeah. uh, doing what's called strike and dip of each rock block. Okay. So we, we measure the path that an individual block would move if it chose to move. Mm -hmm. Some of those rock blocks will actually are, are 
pretty much pinned because the lower crack of that rock block, the one that has the gra has most gravity impacting on it, mm -hmm. actually slopes into the granite. So okay. it's, so it's holding it in place. It's a keystone. Yep. Others could potentially move out. Okay. And we call those... Um, the ones that, that could move out. Yeah, the ones that could move out are called key blocks. Ah. So other rock blocks are associated with those key blocks. In case they do move, then, and we monitor them. And we'll talk about that later, maybe. Um, but if they do move, they could potentially move out of the sculpture. Uh -huh. And so there are four rock blocks that we actually monitor with strain gauges, which is a fiber optic measuring tool hmm. that watches each of these four key blocks change. They expand and contract. It's pretty much all thermodynamic. Expand with the heat of a day, contract with the cold of a night. Okay. Expand with the heat of a summer. Sure. Contract seasonally. with the cold of a, of a winter. Yeah. And so, so far, they all kind of move together. They, they move and there is no net change in any width of any crack at this point. Okay, good. That's a good thing. Right? Yeah, that, that's a good thing. <laughs> okay. So are there other elements uh, other than just kind of the change in seasons or the temperature fluctuations, things like wind or, or water, do they have an effect that you need to mitigate? Some, yes. Uh, the granite, of course, is exceptionally hard. Um, I think it's an eight actually on the Mord's hardness scale, somewhere in there. Um, but so the granite weathers at a slow pace. It uh, initially, Borgum did a geologic survey of the mountain with using the School of Mines and Technology right here in Rapid City. Uh, and they estimated the erosion rate of just the surface granite at one inch every 10,000 years. One inch every 10,000 years. 10,000 years. Wow, okay. So the granite's durable. It is. But the flaws within the granite are the point we really like to have worked over. Mm -hmm. So the cracks, as we talked about earlier, the cracks create rock blocks, and some of those cracks um, accept water, like on the horizontal spaces, and some of them weep water mm -hmm. on the vertical spaces. And so we have the cracks mapped, and most of the horizontal spaces we have sealed. Most of the horizontal cracks, the cracks that are flat, yeah, like on top of the heads or on Washington's left shoulder. Okay. Most of the verticals we allow to weep to allow the water to get out if it gets in. Right. Because it would be bad if we trap the water inside behind a sealant mm -hmm. and then allow for expansion contraction. So we want the water to get out if it gets in. But we do our best to try and let keep the water from getting in. By or at least keep from too much. The horizontal in. spaces. Yeah. Okay. So it's interesting seeing this iconic space and the efforts that the NPS goes through to, to um, keep it enjoyed for future generations. So back to your job capacity mm -hmm. in maintaining, yes. uh, of course you do a lot of interpretation as well, but when you are up there climbing, is it akin to mountain climbing? Because we've talked to a climbing ranger at Rocky mm -hmm. Mountain National Park, but I imagine this is a little bit different. It's similar, has okay. some of the similar hardware tools to ascend and descend and things like that. But there is a, a different technique. Rope access is different than climbing. Yeah. Rope access, we are on rope all the time. Ah. And our ropes are anchored 
in with rock anchors on the top of the sculpture. Right. So those anchors are rated, I can't even remember anymore, it's like six to, I think it's 10,000 kilonewtons is the rating of our anchor sets. And- Which is more than enough, I'm sure. Significantly more than yeah. enough. Uh, for a human. Yeah. But we also have a highline system that we tension that allows us to haul equipment and other things that we need at the top or we need at the bottom from the top. Uh -huh. um, it's a rope tram system. Okay. That I could talk about later if you want. But accessing the mountain, we are always on rope. We, we are not holding on to the rock per se mm -hmm. in any location. We're always on rope and have the ability to, of course, descend and ascend. They're simple. Going moving laterally is a little bit more challenging. Mm -hmm. Um, and it depends on location, how we move laterally on a face. On occasion, we will actually throw a rope underneath the nose oh, really? and anchor it to each side of that face on a rope anchor. Huh. So we throw a, throw a rope under a nose and then we can descend to the rope on the no, underneath the nose and then go laterally on that line. Okay. So as, there are actual as long anchors. As we're still anchored on top, yeah. we just use the, the rope under the nose for, for movement huh. side to side. Huh. We can also move laterally if we go down in teams we can like for instance if we have to be on both sides of a nose we can link both descend down to each side of the nose and then throw a rope over the top of the nose that we're both attached to mm -hmm. and i can brace myself against one of my partners and he can pull himself in uh, okay. using myself as an as a pseudo anchor point yeah or vice versa huh. interesting so being up there you mentioned it can be a little scary. Mm -hmm. um, what is it like being at the top? Can you describe kind of the view from up there? Because obviously it's a unique perspective that no visitor is going to see. Visitors are not allowed yeah. up on the sculpture. <laughs> well, the top of the sculpture, Washington's head is, is rounded out. Okay. There's some, there's some depth behind his head. Uh, so the, the apex of his head, you can if you're on top of the mountain uh, and only I must say that only park rangers get to go to the top of the memorial right um, and even some park rangers don't get to go if they don't have a reason to go yeah but in my job it's my job to preserve the sculpture as best we can so I go to the top on a regular basis and the the tops of the heads you can get to Washington pretty easily once you ascend through the canyon that ascends to the back of the mountain right and then from there you can get to Jefferson real easy um, but getting over to Roosevelt and to Lincoln are a little bit more challenging. There's a crack that you got to go through. Uh. But the perspective from up there is, to be honest, the same perspective you have from the main entry point here at the memorial. The perspective of the plains to the southeast. Looking because back. Because the sculpture faces the morning sun. That's why Borum chose, one of the reasons Borum chose this ridgeline. So looking out from the parking structure out across the plains, it's the same view as it is from up there. You can just see a little bit farther. Yeah. So okay. visitors get that perspective. They do. They just don't know it. <laughs> Tell them out, hopefully. They just don't get it from but, the top of Washington's yeah, head. I don't hesitate to, to point out that perspective, the perspective of the president's view, yeah. uh, physical view from any upper deck of the parking structure or out in front of the main pergola, the main archway, the entry point. Mm -hmm. That's the same view. Excellent. 
So you can be drawn in by these these faces, but maybe turn around now and then and, and look out at the planes. Their perspective is yeah. really cool. Yeah. So we have turned up an interesting fact, and being here, it, it kind of stands to reason. There's a good bit of vegetation. There are trees growing close to yeah. the sculpture itself. So occasionally there have been things like lichen and perhaps trees that attempt to take root in the sculpture. So sure. can you talk a little bit about how that is dealt with? Mm -hmm. The preservation team handles the top of the sculpture and the and the cracks of the flaws in the in the top of the the sculpture we we literally go weeding on occasion oh, like yeah. you do in your garden yeah we'll pull some of the weeds out of the cracks we won't treat them with anything because that treatment will go to the sculpture eventually over yeah, time and leaching mm -hmm. but we we actually have pulled weeds hmm. um some of them aren't weeds some of them are like rose hips and and um there's real actually really pretty good crop of raspberries on top of the mountain yeah um, that are fun to eat when you're there okay the faces themselves because they are vertical they don't allow much for for plant regeneration plant growth mm -hmm. however the lichens have been a problem over the years as you would expect but the sculpture's only been exposed out of the original granite since 1941 completed then right. 41 yeah but there were lichens, lichen growth, what has that been, 70 years now? Mm -hmm. I, I'm not very good at math. Um, but the lichen growth on the sculpture has been there for a while, and, and especially in the darker places that don't get much sun, like uh, Roosevelt's, uh, Roosevelt's his left-hand side up underneath his chin, okay. and Jefferson's same location, his, yeah, it's his really left. tucked away. It's pretty dark space. back in yeah. there. Um, so in 2005, the first project the rope access team did was power washing the sculpture. Power washing? Yeah. Okay. A, a company out of Germany called Karcher, who makes power washers for a living, uh -huh. donates one significant cleaning a year. Oh. So they offered a all of the equipment, the technology, and a separate rope access team out of Germany hmm. to come over here and help and, and power wash the sculpture for which the rope access team assisted them, essentially, is what we did. Yeah. We, we, we helped them power wash the sculpture. I was responsible for much of, much of Jefferson for periods of time. Yeah. Huh. Just scraped all that lichen off via German, yeah, no German engineering. We power well, washed Power it. washing, yeah. Um, and <laughs> only hot water under high pressure. Right, okay. No chemicals whatsoever. Gotcha. So we were able to power wash the sculpture. It took us about three weeks. Spring, it's like June, can't remember anymore, but it was like May, June-ish of 2005. Okay. And that was just done that long ago, or you said there's there's a recurring effort with this? Not or? at this point. Okay, so we, it was just done not, in 2005. We have no plans to power wash the sculpture again unless some, you know, and we don't have to, lichens, their growth rate is exceptionally slow. Right. So it'll be uh, several decades before we start to have lichen growth again. Okay. That covers a lot about uh, preservation. So you and mentioned kind one. of, yeah? Yeah. Um, in uh, summer of 2009, we laser scanned the sculpture. Oh, okay. Uh, in 2009. 2009. Uh -huh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure it was nine. Um, a company called Cyarc from Oakland, California. Specifically, the story is the creator of 
the laser camera, Ben Casera, um, sold the design to Leica Systems, who, and he did pretty well there. Then split off and created his own company called CyArc, Cybernetic Archive. Cyber, okay. CyArk, C-Y-A-R-K. Gotcha. Look them up. Okay. Um, they teamed up with Historic Scotland, which is the Scotland National Park Service, ah. and other local engineers, respec involved, and uh, other colleges teamed up with us and we laser scanned the sculpture. So we have a three-dimensionally sub-centimeter accurate laser scan of Mount Rush. Sub-centimeter accurate? Sub-centimeter accurate. Wow. Okay. So we could laser scan, we could position cameras at the bottom and at the top and could get, because it's a line of sight tool. Yeah. So the closer we get, the more accurate we are. Makes sense. So laser scanning from the top down and the bottom up, we could get much of everything. But then there's a big band in the middle that we can't really get very well mm -hmm. because of the line of sight thing. The lasers spread out over time as you, as a laser is sent out of the camera. Yeah, light disperses. So we scan the middle using a tripod mounted laser camera on a 20 foot specially designed tripod that we lowered over the face of the rock. Oh wow. To get the middle of the sculpture. Okay to piece all those scans together to become one scan. Wow, okay. And what was, what was done with this scan? Well, we have um, lots of great, you know, interpretive media out there. Yeah. Like the sub-centimeter, you know, we have it photo textured. Okay. So it's not a photo of the sculpture, it's photos applied to the 3D scan to be a photo rendered three-dimensional laser scan. Ah, uh, I see. So, so it's not just a relief sculpture, it's actually... It's actually the scan. Wow. Uh, we also have um, the capability of mapping the cracks to a, to a better degree because it's more accurate um, than the photogrammetry um, done in 1998. And we have the capability, and this is the next step. We have been able, again, to map the cracks out. We know where the cracks are from the photogrammetry we can map the cracks on the surface and assign the strike and dip angle of that crack to okay. each crack on a, in a digital format. Okay. So we can outline, you know, just in a computer, put a line on the crack and then assign it the strike and dip angle. And then in the computer where we can remove the sculpture and the rays of the cracks extend into the mountain and intersect. Uh, according to how they emerge. So you can really line up these blocks and figure out their, their full three-dimensional How they emerge as best we know from right. the surface. Now, they, that's just a rendering from what we believe they look like on the surface, yeah. according to how they might look on the inside. How they really look on the inside, we can't remove the granite to find no. out. <laughs> so it's, it's our best judgment of how we believe that crack enters into the sculpture. Yeah, a very educated guess, thanks to modern technology. Yeah, and that's the next step. We have, have yet to, to be able to map those flaws inside the granite. Hmm. So, so didn't they use that, that laser scan for things other than just the preservation of the sculpture? We absolutely did. We created 
we with uh, Hill City Public Schools and Custer Public Schools provided teachers both in art, math, and social sciences. Yeah. So we created lesson plans using the scans and other tools that the scanning uh, produced to create these lesson plans that follow kindergarten through 12th grade on a geometry and math strain, okay. social studies strain, and uh, art strain. Right. For instance, one of them, one full math and geometry a group starts with children K-1-2 finding shapes within their world and shapes within the sculpture. Okay. Like 2D shapes, triangles, yeah. ovals, and so on. Yeah. So they outline the shapes in the sculpture. Huh. Then as they advance, they can begin to find the 2D area of those shapes, say fourth, fifth grade, sixth grade, eventually finding um, three-dimensional shapes within the sculpture, then they can start to figure out the area mm -hmm. of those. And eventually, like 11th and 12th grade, the same curriculum strain advances to the point of finding three-dimensional shapes in the sculpture, 3D shapes in the sculpture, right, the finding the area uh -huh. of those shapes, and therefore knowing the weight of what we know granite weighs per cubic meter, uh -huh. we can figure out how much the sculpture weighs. Oh, neat. Wow. <laughs> All that K through 12. Yeah. It's, a, it's a full strain K through 12. It's an That's interesting an exploration all the way through, wow. tying it to something that these kids can come and see and experience as well. That's that's very cool. But we also created a a that three D fly through that I talked about the three mm -hmm. D fly through of the photo textured laser scan okay. exists out there, and you can see it on the SIAC website. Ah, uh, so you can visit the site and kind of. Uh, see it fully rendered mm -hmm. along with, with the 2d images that were taken around the property including on top of the sculpture are found on the SIAC website so you can go to the top of the mountain virtually you can yeah. go to the chins virtually you can go into the hall of records virtually uh yeah we talked with maureen a little bit about the hall of records and that more recent effort at preservation and, and keeping to borglum's original intent or the spirit of his his design so uh, we also talked to her, as, as with you, about areas that visitors don't necessarily see, but you can explore them virtually mm -hmm. via that site. Yeah, it's pretty so, fun. Yeah. And you can also see, of course, SIAC has scanned hundreds and hundreds of other spaces around the globe. Yeah. Uh, Machu Picchu is in there. Oh, cool. Um, there's some spaces in Mesa Verde, some of the cliff houses mm -hmm. are in there. Other park service sites are in there as well. Right. Yeah, because similarly, Mesa Verde has some areas that have been cordoned off for preservation mm -hmm. that visitors can see from afar, but get a little closer virtually if they, they want to check it out there. They even scanned individual rooms. They did. Okay. Yeah. Cool. I have to check that out. So. As we've spoken about, you've been here for some time now, here mm -hmm. at Mount Rushmore, and you feel a, a connection to it. You've served here, you've served our country. What does Mount Rushmore mean to you? For me, it's, it mean, it's home. Mm. This is my home. And I, I, I feel that 
the power of Rushmore can, if the visitors are open to the possibility, Rushmore can absolutely change people's lives. Yeah. They just have to, to be here uh, and take it in, be open to a broader experience of your emotions, intellectually and emotionally, all those, all those things that make us who we are. If, if you open all that up, open, become receptive of the meanings of this place, it would be happy to help you become a better human being. You feel it's done that for you in your, your 17 yeah. years? Absolutely. Rushmore yeah. is an amazing place. Yeah. It, it has helped me become who I am. And I'm not just talking about my job. Yeah. Being here and, and realizing that, that people come here by the millions a year. And then I, I, I help those folks connect to Rushmore on a personal, meaningful level yeah. has helped me grow as a human. By helping them. And it, 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 you got to have faith that it happens because it hardly ever happens in front of you. That growth. Okay. You just got to believe. You got to believe that when they go home and they think about or have a conversation with their neighbor or something that, that sparks what we've talked about here at Rushmore with them and they bring that home with them and it's inside them and they think about it and they dwell on it. And sometimes it comes up in a conversation with a, with a neighbor or they hear a speech from a president or they pick a thing and it sparks them, sparks that time, that rememory time from Rushmore, that experience there. Yeah. And that is the fire that, that overtakes them and they begin to learn and read and grow. Or maybe it's a book that they brought home from here because they wanted to continue the, the growth that they, or the, the opportunity that they experienced here. Continue yeah. that opportunity. And it, it absolutely changes lives. This place changes lives, as does every park. The power of the place is present in every location, and it doesn't have to be park service. It can be looking across the view from a ridge line out across the plains, mm. out there in the forest service. Yeah. Custer State Park is a beautiful place. It, it happens everywhere. Yeah. And it, it's a individual location speaks to just a certain group of people. It, it's that coalescence of opportunity and the receptiveness that combined together in that space and time that sparks the fire. Right. Well said. Thank you. <laughs> so, um, so what feelings come up for you when you think of, of Mount Rushmore itself? You said this is home humbling thoughts that I'm blessed both personally and, and professionally yeah. that this is my space and I get to be a host and help others be hosts 
to this place and spread the good word. So going bigger picture then, because you have made a lifelong career now of uh, National Park Service, including 17 years here, but what is the importance of the National Park Service to you? And why do you feel it's important to preserve that? Taking care of America's sacred places is important to me because all Americans should be able to experience the powers, the power of all of these individual locations. Because every person has some type of connection to a location. Mm-hmm. Whether they've ex- actually been there or not. Ranger Blaine talks about how we, as humans, have connections to the places preserved in the National Park Service. After our interview, he told us about a ranger program he led at the Black Canyon of the Gunnison on the importance of wilderness. He collected quotes about the wilderness from authors like Howard Zanizer and Wallace Stegner to emphasize the importance of why we set aside these places and the importance of the Wilderness Act. And while this episode features a less natural park, it's obvious to us Ranger Blaine feels setting aside these parks, both natural and historical in nature, is good for the human soul. So, to honor that, we would like to share a Wallace Stegner quote on the idea of wilderness. Something will have gone out of us as a people if we ever let the remaining wilderness be destroyed. We need wilderness preserved, as much of it as is still left, and as many kinds, because it was the challenge against which our character as a people was formed. The reminder and the reassurance that it is still there is good for our spiritual health, even if we never once in 10 years set foot in it. It is good for us when we are young, because of the incomparable sanity it can bring briefly as vacation and rest into our insane lives. It is important to us when we are old, simply because it is there. Important, that is, simply as an idea. For more behind the scenes and bonus episodes, join our Patreon community. New patrons receive a personalized postcard from one of the national parks featured on the show. A link is posted in our show notes or visit podcastswithparkrangers.com. If you enjoyed what you heard, review us on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider to help more people find our show. Stay with us through the final minutes for a short preview of our next episode. We like to highlight on our show ways that a typical park visitor can give back to their national parks. All of our public lands are in search of volunteers, whether it's with the Bureau of Land Management, the U.S. Forest Service, or the National Park Service, which includes Mount Rushmore National Memorial. There's probably a volunteer opportunity in your area. Find out more information by visiting volunteer.gov. Even though we interview park rangers, we are not affiliated with the National Park Service. 
and any views expressed are not necessarily those of the Park Service. We're just fans of the national parks, like you. Coming up in episode 16 of Podcasts with Park Rangers. We journey to Montana to Little Bighorn Battlefield, better known as the location of Custer's Last Stand. We interview Ranger Steve Adelson to find out what exactly happened in one of the most debated battles in American history. <laughs> 